0: Good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We are so glad you are here today. Have you ever started a uh, project that was supposed to be a simple renovation, and by the end of it, it turned into a major reconstruction? Better, let me ask it a different way. Has your husband ever started a simple (laughs) renovation project that turned into a major reconstruction? It can happen. You can think you're biting off uh, X amount, and then all of a sudden it turns into a little bit uh, more than that. When we first bought our home, we live in Pasco. <clears throat> the, uh, the front door had been painted mauve. And if you are not familiar with the color mauve, imagine that you ate six plums and it didn't sit well with you. <laughs> That's what mauve looks like, Okay. <laughs> So it became high on our list of things that we need to change about the house. Because anytime you buy a house that's not, your, like, you didn't build it, right? Even when you, even when you do sometimes, but especially when you buy one that's used, you're like, well, let's just get in, and then we'll, we'll adjust. We'll do some, how hard can it be to paint a front door? You know what I mean? So the time came about a year and a half ago. It was, it was last, not last summer, but the one before that, where I decided on one Saturday you know what? I'm going to paint this front door because I'm sick of looking at mauve plum puke all over my front door. So I took a trip to Lowe's and walked into the paint department. And uh, never, I've never painted a front door before, but I thought, how hard can it be? I've painted houses, rooms, you know what I mean? Like, we've done that. We've, dude, we've painted our kids' rooms, I feel like, three times or four times because I just can't seem to get it right. Um, In somebody's perception, anyways. Uh, So I walk in and I say, uh, "I'd like to buy some paint for my front door." And you know, whenever you go into Lowe's and you're not handy, you don't want to. You want to keep that a secret as long as you can, right? Um, How do I? How do I come across as if I kind of know what I'm doing? as long as I can. Anyway, so I go, uh, yeah, I want to pay my front door. And he goes, great, is it uh, it wood or metal? And I was like, "Uh, shoot, first question. I didn't get past the first question, you guys. I was like, I think I should call somebody. Let me phone a friend, can I use a lifeline? So I called my wife, hey, would you just go check if the door is metal or wood? She didn't even have to check, it's metal. Okay, great. (laughs) I knew that. I was just making sure I did not want to mess that up because apparently you buy different paint if it's metal or if it's wood. He goes, well, since it's metal, you're going to want to buy an oil-based paint. It sticks to metal a lot better. I said, yeah, of course that. I knew that. And he says, how do you plan on putting it on? I was like, uh, with a brush, you know? I don't, he's like, no, 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 you don't do that with oil-based paint. It's going to be a mess. And I said, oh, so what are my options? Well, you need to buy a sprayer, like a little hand sprayer thing. I was like, okay, so uh, so now I'm into it for a fifty dollars sprayer, and then uh, and then he said, you know, something about it's gonna get messy. You're gonna want to you know clean that stuff up. How do you plan on cleaning it up? And I said, uh, probably not water, huh? You know, one of those things. No, you're not gonna want to use water. You're gonna want to buy a big old bottle of paint thinner. Okay. Um, so then I'm into it for, I don't know how many dollars there, eight eight, ten dollars, something like that. And then he goes, uh, what are you going to do? Are you going to scrape it? And then, because you're not going to want to sauce that thing up completely. You're going to have a huge mess on your hand. You're going to try scraping it before? And I'm like, yeah, probably. <laughs> Thanks for the idea. <laughs> you're going to want to buy a scraper. Okay, great. And then uh, you're going to want to, you know, because there's always kind of little crevices and everything. You're going to want to buy a little wire brush to be able to get into all those crevices to make that happen. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's true. He's like, do you have a wire brush at home? I said, probably, but I should probably get a second one just to be sure. Um, So I buy a wire brush as well. So I come walking home from Lowe's with the trunk of my car dragging down. I bought so many dang supplies for this thing. And I, I didn't realize until I was standing there with him that sometimes... Uh, projects require you to take off the old before you put on the new. In in my mind, I went into Lowe's thinking, I'm going to buy some paint. I'm going to buy a brush. I'm going to paint my front door. And then I'm going to watch a bunch of football, college football, the rest of the day. And that was not how it took place. I don't know if you've ever stripped, paint stripped a door before, but that was quite possibly the most painful, time-consuming thing ever. My hands, I, would, I wore those gloves, but it's like the, the, this paint stripper stuff, that's all just chemicals. So, you know, probably should have worn a mask, didn't do that. Uh, and had the gloves on, didn't seem to matter. I could feel it coming through my gloves. My fingers were on fire as I'm doing this, and I'm in my garage, and I'm scraping, and the wire brush isn't quite working, the scraper isn't getting it all off. And I, I sat there, and I thought to myself, I should have just bought a new front door. That would have been... <laughs> Way easier. So who does this? This is the worst thing ever. The worst thing ever, and uh, I still—that still remains true for my my thinking today. But the same can kind of be said, I think, for our character a lot of times. I think a lot of times we go into uh, we go into a church service or a series like this or. Uh, maybe you're not religious and decided to give church a first shot, and you came in and go, "All right, God, here I am. You know, I made it. Are you keeping attendance up there? You know, are you tracking this thing? Uh, I'm in church today, and I'm doing my best. And we take the approach of, God, uh, I have this little problem. Like it's just a little temptation. It's just a little of work in my life. It's not a big deal. Listen, I don't want you to like take over everything for me. It's a minor thing, really." My spouse uh, oftentimes has this uh, thing where they like to remind me about it every once in a while, my kids or my employer, somebody every once in a while gets brought up and I realize like, hey, nobody's perfect and this is just my area and I I can own that and I can recognize that I'm a little short in this area where other people are not quite as short. And I don't want you to mess with my whole life, I just want you to fine-tune my character, just minor tweaks and changes. I don't know if you've ever owned a piano, but my parents, my mom had a piano that was gifted to her from a family member, and so we used to have this old piano in our home, and uh, once every, I don't know, five years, uh, some old guy typically would show up, look like a, a doctor, and would fine tune our piano. He'd hit a chord in it and adjust it, and it would be so imperceptible. He'd be like, does that sound better? And I'd be like, sure, you know? Absolutely. I, oh man, what a, what a life changer for me. Um, as poor as I am at playing, it's probably better if it was out of tune. Can I just play something for you? You tune it to whatever I'm playing and make it sound like uh, Beethoven or something like that. And he said, No, that doesn't, that's not how it works. So, but that's kind of how we—that's kind of how we kind of approach God sometimes with kind of our flaws and our shortcomings and our character. Like we—we we would say, um, It's a good thing I'm in church. I got some fine tuning I need to do. It's my 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 weekly checkup. I go once a week and just kind of uh, look a little more grace, a little more humility, a little less jealousy, a little less anger, a little less bitterness, a little bit more, you know, this and that and the air. But it, it's not much. We think we just need fine-tuning it. And we would say things like, I'm not, all- I, I know this, I'm not always as honest as I could be. I don't always handle my finances exactly right. My thought life isn't exactly perfect. And we live in a culture where it almost feels like it's changed a little bit. I've been, I've been reading this uh, book by David Brooks. I mentioned it in week one of this series. But it's called The Road to Character, and he says, we've gone from a, a mentality of little me, like an awareness of our humility. Humility came easy when you recognized your flaws and when you owned up to your flaws. And you go, hey, whoa, 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 I am, a, I am a flawed type of person. You're working with crooked timber here, right? This crooked timber is no piece of wood is ever perfect, but yet you can still kind of make it work. Listen, every single one of us in the, in, for, for a long time in our era was going, hey, not perfect, but willing to give you what I got, Right? Uh, ownership of flaws. And now it's kind of changing from little me to now big me into where we feel like we operate in an era of authenticity, where if we can just be more of our true self, there exists inside of each of us some sort of a, Charles Taylor calls it a golden figure that, that, is, that can be trusted, uh, a, a piece of ourself that is, is inherently good. That's, that's the difference we used to go, I think if I was less by myself, I'm probably inherently flawed. But today we're more inclined to think of ourselves as inherently good if you'll just give us the chance. Uh, when I read uh, books and, and theology stuff about uh, Christianity throughout the ages, what I, what I find out is a lot of times it was very negative on the human status as, as beings, as um, Rational beings, like, I, I, it, it, it kind of makes me angry how negative it feels. Like, you, you, maybe you've been a part of a church before where the pastor just railed on everybody every single week. You're bad. Listen, you and of yourself, your sinful nature is terrible. If you were left by yourself, destruction. Uh, but at the very end, he'd throw in this, like, but God has a plan for you. And then we pray and dismiss. It was like 90, 90 minutes of terrible, angry stuff. And then a few minutes at the end of like, but there's grace involved in it. Right, so I've always kind of leaned, even in my personal self, towards believing people are inherently good. Like if you give people enough time, that there is goodness in the world, Frodo, and I can feel it. You know that kind of thing. Um, and while I think that uh, that this pendulum swing towards inherently good is is kind of healthy in some different areas, right? I think that um, I think that people can be good. I think that what we've lost in that is a real sense of an awareness of our shortcomings, embracing our faults, recognizing that our character needs work, that we don't need fine tuning, but we need, something, um, we need something more than that. So in Scripture, what happens over and over again is Paul talks about, um, Paul is the guy who uh, started a bunch of churches and wrote a bunch of letters, and a lot of it's collected for us in the form of the New Testament. And he uses language constantly about a new life in Christ. When he describes baptism, he describes water baptism, which is one of the sacraments of the church, right? You've been a part of a church before. There's a big horse trough or pool or hot tub or something like that. Um, a jacuzzi for Jesus, what we used to call it. And so then you'd, you'd, you'd be, I would, it would be representative of I'm dying to my old self and rising to new life in Christ which is very different from come and try something a little bit different this week in your life and see how it works for you and then come back. Um, it was, it was much more dramatic, much more of a life change. And when Paul talks about in scripture, um, the technical term is called regeneration or uh, being born in Christ or born again. You've probably heard that word before, being born again. What, that, what, what he's trying to insinuate over and over again, the language is very much not tweaking, but like complete overhaul with something. It's not worth really my time to tweak you. What you need is an overhaul. What you need is new life in Christ. He's more interested in demolition and reconstruction from the ground up than minor tweaks and changes. So I think uh, we said that this is important to talk about because uh We we've seen um, we've seen a culture where character like dude we live in a culture right now. Think about the last couple of weeks, the stuff that's hit the news in terms of a lack of character. When it comes to the, the thought of I'm sort of a little bit flawed, then in the ethos of that kind of a society, the big ills of society are structural, like society structural, like racism and oppression and marginalization. When there's not that much wrong with me, I'm, easy, I'm more likely to point to the major faults that are happening that are impersonal, that are external to me. But when I start with, I'm deeply flawed, I need new life in Christ, I need this, then we're more likely to go with character. So a- a- as a result of this, we've seen this week some, some mostly men, uh, all men? I don't know, anyways, uh, destroy their... Vocation, uh, their really their political future, probably some of their family life, uh, because of a lack of character. And I would guess that most of them, if not all of them, had a were at least on the path. They got into politics, or they got into to, to media or Hollywood or whatever to make a difference in the world and to. Uh, be a voice of reason, and and to be something great, and to really address some of the ills of society, regardless of what political aisle you know, because the topics then change or whatever. Like, from a public standpoint, from an external standpoint, that's where the problem exists, and they maintained on that. But what they forgot, or what they didn't understand, or failed to understand, or failed to remember, is that your character structures your ability to even have anything to say about those types of things. And when you sweep that out from under you, it's like kicking the legs out underneath, underneath your chair. Don't be surprised when it all comes crashing down and you no longer have a job or a platform to speak into the ills of society that we can agree on, but you don't have the character to say anything. Your word means nothing now because you've lost your character. You've lost your moral authority on any of that. See that's what we kind of miss sometimes, and so we felt like, man, a series on character. Listen, we started this, we started planning this way before we knew any of this stuff was going to hit the roof. It just feels like timing for us. Like we hit the lottery in terms of what's going on in our society and why we think it's important for each and every one of you. Because listen, you may not be uh, uh, a, a a lapse in judgment in your area may not cost you your job. And if you did some of the things that, that they're doing or or if you've got a flaw in your character, listen, it may not be on the front page of the New York Times or CNN.com or even the Tri-City Herald, right? It may not be that big of a deal, but the truth remains, if a lack of character makes itself known in your life, prepare yourself for something like it 's not you realize in that moment i don 't need minor tweaks and changes it 's bigger than that it 's way bigger than that. So we define character in this way, week one it 's the will to do what 's right as God defines right, regardless of the cost, the will to do what 's right as God defines right, regardless of the cost. Now listen, if you 're not a Christian, uh, then you can take out that middle word, that, that middle part because I, I even put it in like little dashes because I realize. Um, Christians gather their sense of morality from what we feel like God has called us to do. Now, if, if you're not a Christian, then that that rule kind of doesn't apply to you. So you have to define right based on some other realm of doing it, which is fine. There's tons of um, ethics. Uh, there, there's tons of books on ethics and morality in our culture. And a lot of times it's uh, based on if uh, everybody had full knowledge of what you were doing, would you be proud of still doing it? That seems to be what is right uh, in in, in culture. But for us as Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, it goes even a step further. It requires us to then discern what does God define as right. And the really hard part about this phrase is that second word in the definition, not the, sorry, probably the third word, the will. The will. God, give me the will to do what is right. Because sometimes I'm motivated to do the right thing in the situation, but only because I don't wanna get caught only because I know if I get caught, then everything's screwed. But if you could give me the will, the want, the desire to do the right thing regardless of the cost as it's defined by you, that would be a person of character. That would be a person who you could respect and his or her voice on moral authority or moral issues would carry weight with each of us. And that will cannot be acquired through trying harder, Paul over and over again through scripture says, it's not a a message of just give me more time, just a few more minor tweaks and changes. It's new life in Christ. And what Margo said last week was um, that God kind of approaches this from an internal standpoint. And he says, listen, I could give you external rules. I could give you like a, a playbook of all of the different things and expectations of what I want you to do. But listen, we've tried that before. The Old Testament is filled with that kind of a message. Rules don't work you never develop the will to do what is right based on rules. You develop methods to either sneak your way around it or control your emotions or control your actions because you're fearful of the consequences. But it has nothing to do with your will. It doesn't change your will. I want to change your will. And in order to do that, I've got to do something different. So Paul describes it in Romans chapter 12. He says, therefore, don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your will mind, the renewing of your mind. That's what I want to do with you. I want, I want you to renew your mind because your mind is right, then your will falls into place. And I don't have to deal with external structures. So renewal is basically a two-step process, as I figured out with my little door project that I do. You take out the old, you take off the old, and you put on the new periodically through Paul's writings, he describes this as the Christian process of discipleship or how do people grow? You take off the old, you bring in the new. You die to your old self through baptism, you rise to new life in in him. Take off the old, you put on the new. You strip away the lies and you replace it with, truth. So I want to read for you a quick passage that Paul writes again, a a different letter this time, not to the church in Rome, but this time to a church in Colossae. Uh, It's called the book of Colossians, or the letter to the Colossians is what it looks like in your New Testament. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, he, he begins to describe this a little bit more. We'll read this together. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And we would say, you're right, Paul. I need to do a better job at that. Listen, it's really frustrating to watch the Seahawks not score in the first quarter for multiple games in a row or do injuries, and there have been some foul things that have filthy language that have come out of my lips. And I apologize, and I feel bad about it, but if Daryl Bevel would start... Anyways, all right? <laughs> do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, he's saying this to a group of Christians and describing to them what has already taken place in them. Um, but, we, but we know that there were definitely some people who read this who, like us, read this and go, man, it doesn't sometimes feel like I've fully died to my old self and put on my new self. Like, I, I I want that. Like, I feel like I've crossed that line. I feel like in, in a moment I've realized uh, this, I want my life to be patterned after following in the footsteps of Jesus. That seems like the best option for me of all the different options that I have. I've tried the whole living for myself thing and that just seems to be deflating and, and, and dispiriting and, and I'm not in it anymore. I, I want to, to do more with my life. I want to respond to the grace that has been given to me. And yet I find myself doing the things that I don't want to do and not doing the things I know I should do. Romans chapter seven, right? I have, I, help me, He's, he's, really, he's really speaking into this, probably knowing tongue-in-cheek that they haven't fully done this and we haven't fully done this. But this is what he wants. This, this is what is expected of us or, or desired from us. Taking off your old self with his practices and put on the new self, which is, this is his key. This is the part where it's like, oh, okay, now I see how this fits, which is being, being, actively being, not has been, but being, currently taking place this is, exact, this, is, this is the process by which I'm living my life. It's, I'm being renewed in what? Knowledge in the image of its creator. I'm being renewed in my knowledge. In other words, you can't live the way you used to live. Why not? Because you're not the person you used to be anymore. When you cross that line of faith, you took on a new identity in Christ. When you became a Christian, you were given a new identity and the new you is being renewed in Christ knowledge. You're a brand new person, but the problem, because we would say, well, gosh, sometimes I just don't feel like it. The problem is that your brain hasn't caught up with your brand new identity. I don't feel very new, and I got to be honest, sometimes I don't act very new. Our actions sometimes need to catch up with our newfound identity. So there's two more weeks left in the series today next week. These two, we're going to talk about taking off the old and putting on the new. Taking off the old, putting on the new. And we're going to drive through this real slowly today. Um, first part of this, if you're taking notes or if you want to text the word notes to the thing on the back of the note sheet, you can see them there. But our beliefs shape, they don't control our attitudes and our actions. Our beliefs shape, but they do not control. They do have an influence, a heavy influence. They've, in, in other words, they fuel our actions uh, and, our, and our attitudes, but they do not control them. All right, your beliefs about me as a pastor shape how you treat me. For those of you who don't know me, who come from another church experience, if it was positive, you probably have a positive outlook on a pastor. If it was negative, if you've never been a part of a church before, and all you've read about are the pastors you show up in the newspaper because you know that, you know why they show up in the newspaper, right? So you're skeptical of me, which rightfully so, you should be. That's where your knowledge of me is at. All right, hopefully. Over time, as you get to know me or get to know people, your attitudes and, and perceptions and, and uh, actions towards them change. If you uh, hang out with my mother-in-law, you'll begin to like me more because she speaks so highly of me or my mom or whatever, right? What you believe about God, sex, money, love, work, parents, school, it's all, it all is shaped by what you currently believe about them. Your attitudes and your experience with them have, uh, shape it, and, and it influences your actions and how you what you believe is right or wrong in those different areas. Um, if you parents of teenage of kids or students or whatever, your attitudes and your actions towards your parents, your parents changed when your kids became teenagers, didn't they? Because you realize what a handful they are. And you realize, I was probably worse than my kids. You go, and so you At some point, you called your dad up or mom up and said, Mom, thank you. you, I'm 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 an idiot. I I realize this. I'm dealing with idiots now, and I realize now I was an idiot too. I was more of an idiot because I did this and this and this. And she's like, you did what? You're like, oops, I didn't realize you didn't know. I had no idea. When we believe things that aren't true about us, all right, if this is true, then the flip side is true. When we believe things that aren't true, it negatively impacts our attitudes and our behaviors. When we, are, <clears throat> when we believe incorrectly about something, it affects our negative behaviors. Think about it. Um, the classic example of this is uh, 14th century sailors. They believed that the world was what? Flat, right? That if you sailed to the edge of the world, then bad news for you. Don't go too far because you'll fall off the edge. And it affected the way that they sailed. They stayed very close to land It did not explore very far for fear because it affected their Fears on this it impacted their behavior, Christopher Columbus then came along and the the, the legend of the, or the story and how it goes is that he uh, he was sitting there eating an apple and a butterfly or a, a bug or something flew on this thing, and it began to crawl on the on the back side of the apple and The last thing that he saw of that bug before it crossed the other side was the very tip of its wing and he goes man that 's kind of what it looks like when a ship sails over the horizon that it 's just a tip of that it slowly becomes this, and all of a sudden it disappears on the horizon he 's like, perhaps the world is Round. Change his perception on it. Change his actions as a result of it. And as a consequence, you and I get a Monday off now every you know every year or so. <laughs> That's what happens. As long as you and I believing incorrectly about God, it's going to shape our attitudes and it's going to shape our behavior. We live in a world that specializes in marketing misinformation. Excuse me about God, sex, money, and love. And I really do think that God is sitting there going, dude, as you believe correctly, your resistance to my will for your life will diminish. That p- perhaps this process of renewing our mind and growing our knowledge so that our actions catch up to our, our, our new life or our, our mind catches up to this new identity in Christ, perhaps we need to expose some of the lies that we believe currently. Now, I'm going to say a few of them. And you're going to be like, I don't believe that. Like, I, When I verbalize it, you're going to be like, no, I, I don't believe that. And I would say the, <laughs> the title of this series is Louder Than Words, right? Louder Than Words. Your actions always speak louder than words. Don't tell me what you believe. Show me how you live your life. That tells me what you believe. And what I'm going to say is when we live our lives in a certain way, it reveals that we believe a lie about ourselves, and we believe a lie about God, and about sex, and about money, and about church, and about pastors, and about everything that affects the way, sometimes negatively, sometimes positively, right, uh, affects the way that we live. So here's, I'm going to give, uh, give you a couple. Lies we believe. Uh, you must be beautiful to be lovable. We are constantly inundated with this, specifically women, Uh, you are, in order to be lovable, you must be beautiful. For others of us, accomplishment equals success. Every day, day in and day out, if we are, for those of you who are are type A, who are very uh, career-oriented, achievement or accomplishment equals success. These are lies that have been, like, and we've talked about this before. We've, We've done, plenty of series on this stuff. But we but we believe these lies, and it begins to shape the way that we treat our family, the way that we prioritize our work life over our family life and our balanced life. These are, are, these are just a couple of examples of lies that we believe. And, and until we're able to identify the lies that fuel our behaviors, we won't make any progress. So here, I want to do a couple more, but those are just specific ones that I think are very general to men and women. But um, let me help you, because I, I, I don't know, I can't, speak to your life individually. If we were over coffee and I was able to hear your story, I would be able to say, hey, maybe you believe this, but I, and I would challenge your assumption. Do you really believe? Do you think that that's true? Because I think it's affecting the way that you live, but we don't have time for that. So I'm going to do it very generally, and I'm going to allow you the space to be able to discern for yourself what are potentially some lies that I'm believing about myself that I need to strip away so that I can replace it with truth and grow into what God wants me to be. So in order to do that, number one, I'm going to ask you to examine your excuses. What are the excuses that you give where you would say things like this? Hey, listen, I know it's wrong. I know it's a lapse in judgment. I know it's probably bad character, but I'm going to do it anyway because dot, 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 fill in the blank. How do you excuse your wrong behavior? And attached to every one of these things that I'm going to talk about is a lie. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways because I'm not the only one doing it. What's the lie in the idea that I'm going to do it, but it's okay because everybody, you know, there's a lot of people doing it. The lie is that God doesn't care as long as it's done in multiples. That we're, that we're going to get up to the heaven or whatever and there's going to be like some class action lawsuit. We're all like, come here, come here. We're all here. Hey, you can't judge all of us. Look at this. We are not the only ones. Therefore, it's not even really that bad. <clears throat> and you would say, I don't really believe that. I know, but you live in that way Sometimes. Potentially, that's a lie that we believe in. Number two, uh, I know it's wrong. I'm gonna do it anyways because I don't really see any harm in it. I don't really see any harm in it. I mean, like I thought through it and I think I'm all right. I think I'm I'm okay. And the lie that we believe there is if you don't see any harm in it, there must not be any. Which is essentially the fact that you've confused yourself for God, right? I don't see any harm in it. So I'm probably good. Well, yeah, but but you're not God. Like you don't get to you don't get to determine that. Like you sometimes don't see it because we're so blinded to ourselves. Uh, I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyways because uh, I love him or I love her. But I love him. I I love her. And the lie there is that love takes precedence over obedience. Love alone is not a good enough reason. Listen, our culture. Really has this jacked up. This is a huge misinformation lie. I really think in our culture, but you can do anything in the name of love. Well, you know, I just I love. There's some, there's some love there. So love is love is love. So uh, I'm 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 gonna choose to do this. And and um and for, for again for those of you who are are parents of teenagers or college kids, like you see this. You're, you're, you are going to respond to that lie most passionately when it's your kid who's using this excuse to do something. You're like, no, that's stupid. Don't do that. Hey, wait, wait, focus here. Listen, love's not enough. And they're like, but, but you do it, but you say that. And you're like, ah, you got me. <laughs> and then it falls into that, but we don't do it alone. We, I wasn't the only one doing it. Anyways, uh, this is a funny one, but this, is, uh, this is, comes out of me. I used to be a youth pastor. And so this was a lot more relevant then. It probably won't be as relevant now. But uh, I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyways because I don't listen to the words, right? Ah, uh, it's just the beat. I love the beat, man. Do you realize it disparages women, talks about drugs? And it, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I don't, dude, I, don't, I couldn't even write down the lyrics. I have no idea what it's saying. The lie, there, the lie there is I can listen to things over and over and over and over and over again and memorize it really and not have effect on me. That's the lie that you believe. Uh, Or this one's good too. um, I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyways, because he deserves it, or she deserves it. Uh, It's wrong, and it's probably more of a revenge bit, but I'm going to do it anyways, because he deserves it. And the lie there is that I need to treat people the way that they deserve to be treated. And God doesn't do that for us. He doesn't do that for you. These lies are like unfounded fears. And if you could examine your excuses once in a while, and you, and you know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it, and here's why. <clears throat> and if you could go, okay, in the, in the silence of your own mind, right? What is the lie that I'm believing here? If you could take that one step, you would begin to expose the lie and when you expose the lie of something, it removes the fear or the pain of it involved in it, right? I mean, as a kid, remember when you thought that there was something in your closet and your mom and dad turned on the light and you're like, oh, there's no fear there. There's nothing there. The light, when it actually reveals what's actually going on or actually there, removes our, its inability to affect us or have influence over us. When you can expose the lie oh, this is actually what I'm believing. When I act in this way, when I respond in this way, what it's revealing to me is uh that i'm that i I'm, I'm, I'm not in control of this that i that i I'm missing this that i'm i'm'm I'm, I'm believing a lie about something I need to replace it with the truth number two is this examine the areas in your life where you tend to overreact when it comes to character and and uh, you and i I, I, I want to be a person of character I want to be somebody who um, has uh the internal self in order so that it, you know, whatever comes that there's support system there to be able to make it happen so that it doesn't fall apart immediately because of a stupid lapse of judgment. Uh, number two is examine the areas of your life where you tend to overreact. We all have areas in our life where the topic gets brought up, uh, and whether it's the, the political season on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, or, or just conversations, or it's a family, it's a, it's a hot button thing, and you are coming to Thanksgiving, and so you know it's coming up at dinner. You know what I mean? Like, you're literally dreading you're literally dreading those two hours at the family's house because you know there's going to be something said that the people who know you best know exactly the angle at which to poke and prod and poke the button and and do the things. And and we tend to overreact in that area. And someone brings it up and your blood starts to boil and you begin to have, it's like in those moments, it's really hard to have genuine conversations because everything turns cynical. Everything turns sarcastic. Um, We begin to use hyperbole and, and all kinds of yeah, well, what about, what about, what about, what abouts? <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's just like this massive fight. There's two common causes of overreaction, fear and pain. And by pain, I mean emotional pain. We're fearful of something. And so it, we, we tend to overreact in that area because we've been hurt in the past as a result of it. So what, what are those areas? What's that something that when it occurs in you and it occurs in me, we tend to lash out in such a way that we're not really proud of it after the fact. We get in the car on the drive home, your husband or your wife turns to you and goes, what was that about? What was that about? I've been le- believing a lie about something in my life, about something that was done to me or said to me, or I'm fearful about what could happen. And I need to stop and I need to take an evaluation of my life and begin to not, not allow that to space and, uh, and work on God I'm renewing my mind in this area so that I, I, don't, I don't believe that anymore and I may not react in that way anymore. Last but not least, examine your recurring temptations or besetting sin. What is the thing that is constantly nagging at you? What is the thing that you just can't get rid of? What is the thing that you're not proud of it and there are a couple people maybe in your life that know about it and, and, and uh, you've got most of your house in order, most of your life in order, and yet there's just something. I just can't shake it. I can't get past it. And I can't, and I, I, man, I've done everything I can. I, or that, and that we, we say those words. I've done everything I can. It's not my, not my fault anymore. It's out of my hands. We believe that. We, we've, behind these temptations, is a lie that we've chosen to believe, that we've done everything that we can, that it's not our fault, that um, there was something that happened to us. Um, we, uh, we fall into this trap. And so often, I think that what Paul is trying to illustrate in this, and he speaks it into the future, is, look at take off that old, self, put on this new life in Christ. Your mind needs to catch up to your new identity. And in order to do that, sometimes it takes a reevaluation of the things that we believe are right and wrong. One of, the, one of the, uh, my favorite proverbs are a great, I'm going to give you a memory verse today. We don't usually do this. This is, this is what we usually do with the kids. All your kids come home and they practice these memory verses and you feel bad because they're like, your kids know more Bible than you do, right? So here's your chance to catch up with them this week, all right? Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8. There's two parts to this. The second part, you, you wouldn't like it, so I just left it out. But <laughs> here's the first part. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. The phrase, the actual part at the beginning is, God, there's two things I ask before I die, things that I want to characterize my life. God, help me keep falsehood and lies far from me. As a Christian, as we are growing into our faith and as we become more and more mature in our walk with Christ, there are gonna be lies that we didn't even know we believed become exposed and then there's once we understand it as a lie, then we can move forward in truth. And re- early on, we may resist. And funny, here's the funny thing about Eastlake: like we we have uh, we have always constantly tried to be a church where there's just like, hey, the bar of entry is like crazy low. Uh, I don't care. Uh, I don't care if you stumbled in here. You know, you're welcome here. I don't care what you're breath smells like, you know, we're glad that you're here. And for a lot of people from other churches, um, or the church that I grew up, I, I won't say other churches to say this, but uh, the church that I grew up in, it was like, Ooh, I, you know, well, they better figure it out quick. There's like a countdown clock before you figure out. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of judgment in that way. And we've opted for grace because one, we're all broken. We, we live in that, we're aware of our own lack of character. And um, we operate with the sense that I think God's spirit works in revealing lies that we have believed into becoming truth. And once that revelation has been made to us, then we move forward with truth and we become more and more and more in the likeness of, our son, of, of God's son, Jesus Christ. And that is what discipleship has looked like. So our, my prayer for you, my prayer for myself is, God, keep falsehood and lies far from me. May I not fall into the trap of believing something that's a lie. Let's pray. Father, would you help us this week renew our minds by allowing us to really focus in on things that we are called to put off, long-held beliefs that we just, we've, we've, we've kind of, uh, fallen into the trap of thinking that we need kind of fine-tuning and really the, the big moral ills of, 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 uh, of the world that happen in the structures of society rather than in ourselves. I pray that we would become internal-looking. God, what do you want to do to shape me? What kind of lies am I believing? Where do you want to shine the light of truth in there and move me forward to be better, uh, better able and better informed to follow in your will for my life? So give us the wisdom, I mean, that's a huge piece of today. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like, the courage to act on it. In your name, amen.